Amen. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we are no longer slaves to fear. You've set us free by the blood of your own Son. And Lord Jesus, because you live, we have no fear of tomorrow. We look forward to that day when we will rise and we will be with you in glory. And we will see you face to face as you really are. We come here this morning to worship you. We come here this morning only because you died in our place. You have taken our sin. And with that great exchange, you have given us your own righteousness. We are amazed by your amazing grace. We're set free by your death on the cross for us. And because you live, we have hope. So now as we open your word, we pray that by your spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts and then empower our lives to live for you and to bring you glory and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So good to be with all of you this morning. Have you ever wondered why it is or, or what it is that Jesus is doing right now. You know, we know that he died for us. We just celebrated that around the Lord's table. We know that one day he's returning to take us home to be with him. But what is he doing now? The writer to the Hebrews unpacks that for us in a beautiful way. But sometimes we miss it. We can remember when we take communion what the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 10, that by one single sacrifice for our sins, having made that sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the day when the Father would subdue all nations under his feet. And when we hear that in chapter 10 of Hebrews, we can think, okay, so Jesus accomplished his work. We've just celebrated that at the Lord's table. He ascended to heaven. He sat down at the, at the right hand of the Father, and he's waiting until the Father sends him back to take control of this earth and to reign as high king. But Jesus didn't simply go on vacation. Jesus isn't just simply waiting in heaven until the next job that he's given to do. Chapter 7 comes to a conclusion with this whole picture of why it's important that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron's priesthood, in the verses that we look at this morning. If you have your Bibles open, if you, if you can open them to chapter 7, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 23 to 25. And we've been walking through chapter 7. It begins by talking about Jesus' high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. If there's been one theme, one theme that has pre been predominant in this order of Melchizedek is that Jesus' high priesthood is permanent. Melchizedek had no history of ancestors, no history of his death. And so Jesus, in that order, not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe, now comes, always eternal, and he reigns forever. His priesthood is permanent. So 
we begin with verse 23. Remember verse 22 that we ended with last week ends with the word, surprisingly, rarely spoken in the epistles, Jesus himself. Specifically in Hebrews, I think it only comes twice. This is one of them. Usually he's spoken of as the son, or he's spoken of as the king, or he's spoken of as the priest. But here his name is given, and his name in the original language is the very last word of verse 22. All of this about Melchizedek and Jesus being in his order is pointing to Jesus. So verse 22, then the guarantor of this better covenant is Jesus, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently. There's that picture of permanently. Permanently here means non-transferable. Remember, he's, a, he's the, the guarantor. You can get a warranty that's transferable, you know, to the next owner. This is non-transferable. It's a permanent priesthood that he has. Why? The end of verse 24, because he continues forever. That's taking us back to verse 16. By the power of his indestructible life, he is our high priest. He continues forever. Verse 25, here's the key. Here's the final message. Consequently, everything comes to this point. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, everything comes to this point. He is permanently our high priest. You know, if you have somebody sort of standing in for you, representing you, or somebody that you respect a lot, but then they die, and somebody else takes that place, it can be hard. You know, you, you, the priests, the high priests would keep dying, and so you can imagine maybe somebody has a high priest in this time who's about the same age as them, and this high priest is there for maybe 20 years, and they, they sort of know him well, and then he dies. And now his son takes over. And you feel like, well, how is he going to represent me? I don't really know him. Some people sort of feel like that with pastors in churches. You shouldn't because the church is not about the pastor. The church is about the body of Christ, the fellowship of believers. It's all about Jesus Christ. But some people will say, well, the pastor's gone. And the new pastor, I just don't connect. And so they start looking for another church. That's not what the church is about. It's not about a pastor. But people feel that way. Well, with Jesus... He's a permanent high priest. You never have to worry about, you know, I'm getting to know him. I know he understands me, but now he's gone and somebody else has to get to know me. This never happens. With Jesus, it's a non-transferable high priesthood. And so because of this, consequently, or some of our Bibles say in verse 25, so the conclusion of all of this about his priesthood is two things. First of all, he's able to save those who draw near to the Father through him, and he's able to save them to the uttermost. And then secondly, he always is interceding for us. Jesus is active. Jesus is working. He didn't die, rise, and then just sit down at the Father's side waiting for his next job. He, he isn't just waiting around. He is doing something, and he's doing something for us. Now, many times when we think of what Jesus is doing now, we remember John chapter 14, 
Jesus said, I'm going to my Father, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I am so excited to someday get to that place. I mean, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us Jesus created everything that we're enjoying right now. He created this whole world, and he's sustaining this world. But he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That place has got to be exquisite, doesn't it? Heaven has got to be beyond our imagination. We know Jesus is doing that, but we can sort of think, well, that's there. I'm not getting there yet. What is he doing for me right now? Well, this is what he's doing for us right now, saving us and interceding for us. And he does it to the uttermost. That's sort of an archaic word in some ways. It's, it's an old word. Not too often do we use the word uttermost. I like the word nth. He does it to the nth. Now, I know some of you are saying, Brent, that's not a word. You know, you, the nth degree is not a word. It is a word. I looked it up. In fact, it popped out at me because it's a synonym of uttermost. In the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, if you look up nth, it says extreme or utmost. It's to the highest degree, the furthest you can go. There's nothing beyond it. Jesus doesn't do things halfway. He doesn't do things partway. When he's standing in for us with, before the Father, it's not like once in a while I'm going to remember Brent. No, it's, it's to the uttermost. It's to the nth degree. It's all the time, all the time, thinking of us, praying for us, supporting us. He doesn't save us to leave us. He doesn't save us to leave us to the struggle with the sin-wrecked world in which we live. Jesus doesn't save us to leave us to wrestle with our own sin nature that constantly we find ourselves, like Paul says in Romans 7, struggling to do what is right. I want to do this, but I fail. Jesus doesn't leave us in that struggle. Paul ends Romans chapter 7 by saying, who shall deliver me? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't leave us to figure out how to live this new creation life, this transformed life, this born-again life on our own. Jesus is active right now, if you have put your faith in him, and he is active to the nth degree. Jesus' nth work on our behalf never ends. As our high priest, who is high priest permanently because he lives permanently forever, his nth work, his uttermost work on our behalf never, never ends. So the writer of Hebrews gives us two special things that he's focused on doing for us right now, not just someday when we get to heaven, right now, this moment, as you walked in here today, when you walk out of here today, this is what Jesus is doing for you. The first is his nth kind of salvation. He's able to save to the uttermost, verse 25, those who draw near to God through him. Now, it's important that we notice that last phrase, those who draw near to God through him. It's only through Jesus. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me, except through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. That's not because Jesus is proud and doesn't want to share this role with anyone else. It's because Jesus alone 
came and lived without sin. Jesus alone laid his life down for sinners. Jesus alone rose from the grave. Now, there are lots of people who tried to help other people, lots of people who started religions, whether it be Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or whoever you want to list. And, and in some ways, those people may have been good people, but none of them were sinless. None of them died for others. They died for themselves. And none of them rose from the grave. So there is no other person who can present us before the Father, who can represent us before God Almighty, no other person who can be our high priest. So Jesus saves to the nth those who draw near to God through him. What would it look like if Jesus didn't save us completely? What would it look like, for instance, if Jesus only made a down payment for our sins? Well, then that would mean that he made the down payment, but I've got to make the rest of the payments, right? And for sure I'd fail. If Jesus only made a down payment, what if I got something wrong? What if I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to do something and I didn't do it? Well, now I'm in trouble. I mean, Jesus paid for my sins at one point, but this one I've added on. And no, he is able to save completely. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save to the nth degree, to the nth. What would it look like if we weren't securely saved? As Jesus says, as the Hebrews, writer of Hebrews says, Jesus in chapter 5, verse 9, gives us an eternal salvation. What if it wasn't eternal? What if it wasn't absolutely secure? If, if my salvation or your salvation wasn't secure, we would have no peace. We would have no peace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives. But if our salvation isn't secure, we're never sure. We're always wondering. If, if I could be ripped out of Jesus' hand, it, you know, if he saved me and saved me like when Peter was going under the water and Jesus reached down and pulls him up, if, if I could be ripped out of his hand, then I would be terrified of whoever's going to rip me out. And it might be the devil. He's my enemy. He'd try to rip me out of Jesus' hand. But Jesus says, I can save to the uttermost. I can save completely. What about if, if I've trusted in Jesus as my Savior, I've asked him to take my sins away, but I sin again. And then I ask him to forgive me, and then I sin again. And, and I've got this area in my life that I'm struggling with, and, I, and I, I keep struggling with it. If I, by my sin, can cause myself to lose my salvation, then my destiny is not dependent on Jesus, it's dependent on me. I've got to get it right. And I don't know if you're like me, but there are some sins that I've struggled with since I was a little boy. And thank God, they're all forgiven. If it was, if it was up to us alone, none of us would make it to heaven. So Jesus said in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Eternal life, once it begins, 
it goes forever. When does Jesus give us eternal life? When we believe on him, when we trust in him. That means it goes forever. From that moment, not when we get to heaven, but from the moment we trust in Jesus, that life that he has given us now goes forever. The body dies, the spirit immediately goes to be with him, and he'll resurrect the body and give us a new, better body. So that life has already started if you believed in Jesus. You already, you already are living eternally. And Jesus says, no one can take you out of my hand. So what happens if we sin then? Jesus died for our sins, and he died not just for a few of our sins, all of our sins, because he doesn't have to die again. One sacrifice was sufficient for all of them. Well, then what happens when we put our faith in Jesus and then we do sin again? Well, John, when he was writing to Christians in his first letter, John's first letter written to Christians, says in verse 9 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we as Christians say we are sinless, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So yes, as, as Christians, we will still sin. We confess that sin because he's already forgiven us. We confess it to him because once we are his children, he is always our father. I have three sons. And it doesn't matter what happens in their lives. It doesn't matter what they ever do. They will always be my sons. They will never lose that relationship with me. And when we become the children of God, we will always be the children of God. He has forgiven us for everything. But if, my, if one of my sons was to get really angry at me and say, I don't want to see you anymore and walk out of my life, there's a rupture in the relationship. There's not a rupture that says that they're no longer my son. When we sin against God, we confess our sins. We want to repair that relationship. But we're always his children. Our salvation is secure. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What does that mean? A key principle in Scripture, and it's shown here in the kind of verb that is used this is a present infinitive for those of you who like grammar. That means Jesus saves, 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 saves every moment. That's what he's doing. What that means is he saved us when he died on the cross and when we put our faith in him, he saved us completely. All of our sins are gone. But it means he's saving us right now in every moment of our lives as we live for him and as we continue to struggle in this evil world. And he will save us until we are finally in heaven glorified and all sin is removed. There is no sin. He saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us. That's why it's a present infinitive. At any time when you read this, Jesus is actively doing this. We see this same truth given to us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. In Romans chapter 8 verse 30, this is what the Spirit of God tells us through the pen of Paul. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There are four verbs there. He predestined. That means God knew you and decided he was going to reach down into your broken life, into your lost life, and save you. He called. He called us. Dead people 
can't do anything. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God out of his grace reached out to us. Now, all of us remember a time when we said to Jesus, we said to God, I believe that Jesus alone is my Savior. I trust Jesus. We did that, but we did that because he was calling us. Maybe he sent somebody into our life. Maybe the Spirit of God was working in our life. Maybe we read the Bible, but God was calling us to himself. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified as if we had never sinned. He washed our sins away, and those he justified, he glorified. You put those, those four verbs together, and the verbal form there forms a chain that is unbreakable. So we miss it in our English language, but in the original language, there's a very specific verbal form that means once one of these begins, there is an unbreakable chain. You cannot take it apart. And so you have a chain of predestined people who are called people, who are justified people, who are glorified people. He is able to save us to the uttermost, to the nth degree. When he saved us, he is still saving us right now, and he will save us when we are finally glorified in heaven. We are absolutely secure. Jesus is doing that for you right now, no matter what you're struggling with in your life. It's a sin that just is so hard to get away from, or maybe a trauma that you're going through, maybe a disease you're struggling with, maybe just brokenness in the world around you and your family. And Jesus not only saved you when you believed in him, he is saving you right now. He is holding on to you, and he will save you until you are in glory and all sin is removed. The nth kind of salvation. And then there's an nth representation and help. The word used here is since he always lives to make intercession for them, for those who come to the Father through him. That's nth representation and help. What does intercede mean? When we think of intercede, we think of somebody who's speaking on your behalf to somebody greater. But it's far more than that. This word means to the active representative work of Jesus, which never ends. The active representative work. John was talking to us about that great exchange. He, he, exchange, he takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness, but it's not a done deal. He continues to represent us before the Father as our high priest. He is actively acting on our behalf. That's what to intercede means. It's more than just to speak to the Father. It's to act on our behalf. Remember, Jesus said in John 14 and John 16, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you my spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is that? That's Jesus' spirit. We don't have three different gods. This is one God. Jesus says, I will send you my spirit. So the spirit of Jesus lives in us. He is actively acting on our behalf all the time. And that's how he keeps saving us. Jesus didn't disappear to sit at the Father's hand and, and say, okay, you, you guys just keep going until someday I come and resurrect you. And it's not that Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand and pleading with the Father on our behalf because the Father is really reluctant to help us. When we hear that word intercede, we can think, well, the Father must not be very excited about helping, and so Jesus is begging him, 
please help Brent. I know he's failed a lot of times, but please help him one more time. You know, it's just like the Father is ready to give up on us. No, it's the very Father who loved us so much that he sent his only Son. It's the very Father who took an oath that said, this is my Son who I want to be a permanent high priest, always representing you. Will you put your name there? I want my Son, Jesus, to always represent you, Jill, Sue, whatever your name is. He is representing you. So when we're desperate, when we're desperate for help, Jesus, because he always lives, is always acting on our behalf. It doesn't matter what that need is. We could be overwhelmed with a sense of guilt. Jesus is always acting on your behalf. You could be overwhelmed with trauma that you've experienced. You could be overwhelmed with the unknown that you are afraid of right around the corner. It doesn't matter what you're facing. Jesus is not leaving you alone. And when you have somebody acting on your behalf, you want to make sure it's somebody who understands, who's been in your shoes. That's why we're told in chapter 2, verse 18, He's been in our shoes. He's been tempted in every way like us without sin. When you need somebody to really help you, you don't only want somebody who understands, but somebody has, who has the ability and the authority to help you. Jesus is God. He has the ability. He has the authority to help you. He is able, we're told in verse 25, that word able is the word we get dynamite from. He's got all the power we need to take care of us. And he, he knows everything we're going to need, even before we know it. We have a couple examples of him interceding for disciples the night before he went to the cross. And, and I love the way the Scripture gives us these examples because the first one I'm going to mention, it, he knew before Peter knew that Peter was going to need his help. Remember, they're sitting around the table. They've just had communion. They've just had the Lord's table. And Peter's telling him, I'll never deny you. I, I'm going to go to the cross with you. I will die with you, whatever it is. It, Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked he has demanded to have you. He wants to sift you, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned again, I want you to strengthen your brothers. If you read on in Luke's gospel, Peter is in the courtyard. He denies Jesus three times. And then there's this little phrase, Jesus turned and looked at him. <laughs> Jesus was there for him. Even though Jesus was being beaten, Jesus was being spit upon, Jesus was being mistreated at that very moment, he knew that Peter needed a look of compassion and love. And we're told that Peter went out and wept, but he repented of his sin, and when he turned back, he's used to encourage others. Peter didn't even know he needed help, but Jesus knew he needed it before Peter did. 
And then Jesus prays that night. Longest prayer we ever have recorded of Jesus in John chapter 17, just before he goes to Garden of Gethsemane and he goes to the cross. And Jesus, when he prayed, he prayed for you, specifically you. Listen to what he says. I do not ask, he's talking to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's talking about the disciples who are with him, the 11 that are left. Judas, Judas Iscariot has left the room. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying for them. He's interceding for them. He's stepping in on their behalf. And then look at what he says. And I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. Jesus knew your name and he was praying for you right before he went to the cross. He said to his father, Father, I'm not just praying for these 11 guys around me right now. I'm praying for every single one who's going to believe in me. And Jesus wasn't just thinking of some big lump number. He knew every single one of our names. He says, and I, this is what he prays, not only that God would keep us from the evil one, like he had prayed for them, but he goes on, I'm praying that they will be one just as you, Father, in me, and I am in you, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for our unity. If there's one thing the world wants to do, the enemy wants to do is to pull us apart. And the enemy will try to do that because we come from different generations. You don't understand each other from different cultures and you grew up differently from different cities that you grew up in, different ethnic backgrounds, different political views. And the, the enemy will try to pull the body of Christ apart. And Jesus prayed for us that he would draw us together. That is his desire for Highland Park Baptist Church, that we would be unified because the devil wants to pull us apart. He invites us to come to him for help. He is able and ready to intercede, to help. That's what that word means, to help. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. That means the yoke like an oxen, he's going to guide us. We don't come to him, give him our burdens, and then do whatever we want. We're going to follow him because he's our high king and our high priest. But take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Peter, he was told, when you turn back again, comfort your brothers, help them. Look what Peter said to us. Cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you. Peter knew that. That look from Jesus' eyes after he denied him the third time, Peter knew he was still loved. Jesus has been praying for me. So the psalmist says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. That's who Jesus is right now. He's not on vacation. And he's not just waiting to come back someday. He is saving you to the nth. He saved, he's saving, and he will save all the way you're safe. And he is there to intercede, to help, to actively act on your behalf. Why? Because he's always alive. Because he has an indestructible life. And now with that life, he offers to help you. When you are alone, Jesus is there. When you need wisdom, Jesus is willing to give you his wisdom. When you fail, Jesus is ready to forgive you and to restore you 
Jesus is always working on your behalf. Jesus' nth work on our behalf never, ever ends. Jesus is able, in Jude's words, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his own glory with great joy. Lord Jesus, we bow before you so thankful that you saved us and you are saving us and you will save us, that you are always, because you exist forever and you're permanently our high priest, you are always representing us and always acting on our behalf. You have not left us here alone, but you are working actively on our behalf to protect us, to keep us, to guard us until one day you take us home. We worship you and adore you because we come to our Father through you alone. Amen.